0: You're listening to Let's Talk AI.
1: Welcome to Let's Talk AI. Today's guest is Mark Crowley, Associate Professor in Electrical and Computer Engineering. So, welcome, Mark. Hi Harold, thanks. Thanks uh, for having me. It's nice to be here. You know, today we're going to j- jump in to understand a bit of your background. Uh, how'd you get into AI, and and uh, and where you're going with uh, with that now? So let's just uh, wind wind back the clock a bit. And yeah. how did this all start for you?
0: Yeah, trying to think back to it. So yeah, so I'm from Toronto. Um, so kind of nearby um area, right? And um, I guess I was in university. I did computer science um, at York University, and I guess graduated. Um, 99 in the undergrad, right? And I did um, actually did BA in computer science. So I was doing all this extra, like on the side, I was doing philosophy and uh, social political thought with the uh, programming on the side. But one of my favorite things in, in computer science was um, the AI courses, the programming and logic um, and things. I started, uh, fell in love with the idea there. But then I went to industry for a few years. Um, IBM worked there. And then um, for reasons, kind of decided to go back to grad school and pick up AI um which i then i went to um ubc to do my master's and phd and when i got there ai was very different than i had uh, uh, seen in undergrad so it was interesting
1: okay different in what way
0: well at, like around that time um the, there was all these kind of like ages of ai development and stuff right like um essentially what i learned in school was there was a lot of focus on logic and rules and building things up so i don't know if you remember like um when i was young the um The chess um, program they're playing, Garry Kasparov, Deep Blue was this big thing. So that was kind of like the pinnacle of this logical approach to AI. Um, But at the same time, all these other things were happening using statistics and probability and um, not even neural networks by that point, but like building towards that. Um, So when I got to grad school, everything was like, oh, AI is all probability statistics, um, which is good because... um, If we want to have something as complex as you know human thinking or even animal um, intelligence or thinking you have to deal with an uncertain world right so when i did my grad school a lot of us feeling what dealing with probabilities and what do you how do you build rules and make a computer do something useful if the world is uncertain and it doesn't know what's happening it's it's unsure about things
1: okay so you did your phd there and then you Land, landed back here in Waterloo after that or what, Not how did right that away. happen? Yeah.
0: So I did, I was at UBC for a master's and PhD. So I finished there 2011. Um, and then I did a postdoc, um, in the States. So in Oregon at Oregon state university, go beavers. Um, and, uh, did some, some work there with, uh, Tom Dietrich and his research group, um, which was really useful. Um, and he was in the, an area and it was actually related to, um, forest fire, um, like prediction and mitigation, which had been somewhat related as a topic to my thesis. And so it was a perfect fit. And then I was there a couple of years and then applied for faculty positions in Waterloo was perfect because it's near home. My parents and family are still in Toronto and it's a great school for all this um, kind of stuff. So it was a perfect fit.
1: Awesome. So let's come back to the forest fire thing in a, in a few minutes, but let's go back to when I you know, I checked out your your, brief, your profile on the Waterloo the Waterloo website. And it says machine learning optimization and probabilistic probabilistic uh, modeling. So what's well, that's a big a lot of words there. How do what's the how do you boil that down into simple language? Where's your focus?
0: Yeah, I, I actually touch on a lot of different things, but I guess um the focus, you know, these days is always coming down to um trying to find um models um that can yeah, make the assumptions say, Oh, what's a model? So um what is AI machine learning right you're build you're trying to get a computer to do something that we would call thinking right everybody would like debate whether you know intelligence is the right word for this but essentially what we're doing right We know that you know people can do complex things like play chess and drive cars and plan and decide how to fight forest fires um so if our brain is a computer, a computer should be able to do that right um, the thing about AI over its history has been they've focused on trying to do things logically and then they now we've added in you know, probabilities and statistics to deal with if you don't know what's going to happen next, how do you estimate you know, what's the most likely outcome, right? That's an important part of intelligence. And then most recently with um, deep learning, which is most, what most people mean by AI machine learning these days, it's about you know simulating the, a bit of the complexity that our brain has that it's not just about the probability of something happening, but um, learning from many different examples and synthesizing them. Um, but so I focus a bit more on on reinforcement learning, which isn't in that list you listed there. So I would say that's my my core one. But um, I'm always been a bit on that side of logical and probabilistic AI, where I'd like to know what it means and have a a structure to to how it works, um, which is not how everyone in AI kind of focuses on things.
1: Okay, so we think about this as a pendulum, and it started way over here on the on the one side of logic. It swung all the way over now to the more, give me the data and let the machine learning model figure it out. We seem to be coming somewhere into the middle now. Um, you know, a combination of logic and machine learning. Uh, you call it different names, probabilistic and things like that. Is that, is that a, a reasonable way to describe it? It's, I
0: mean, it's, been, it's definitely a discussion that's ongoing with everyone. And it's, it's inevitable, I think, that it will happen. There's been a lot of focus on, you know, deep learning and these models that it's the data can extract out this behavior, these patterns we want. Um, There's a lot of of us who feel like, you know, at some point you're going to need more structure and you're going to need logic and even um, uh, causality. So some of my recent focus has been on, like, can we get causal kind of um, meaning out of things? And and causality is just, um, you know, A causes B. So you hit your foot, you press down on the brake on the car, the car stopped. It stopped because you pressed the brake, right? Pure kind of deep learning models just see those two things happening and say, well, they seem to happen together, but whether one caused the other, isn't automatically in there, right? And that seems like an important aspect, right? That's what science is all about. So I think there is a movement back that
1: direction, but it's only just starting. Um, okay, earlier you mentioned the words finding a model uh, that fits. What does that mean, finding a model? I mean, obviously you're not searching in a in a, in a dumpster of models here. What? How do you find models? Are you taking some that are there and iterating? Uh, Adding new uh, aspects. Uh, what does that mean?
0: Yeah, if if my students said that, I'd be like, "What do you mean? What's a model?" I mean, so it's a good question. <laughs> like, model is a very overused word, um, and we just kind of use it because we don't know what else to say, right? We got this big, complex box, uh, you know, in our computer that basically takes in some information and gives us out some other information, right? So that could be a prediction of what move to make in chess, you know, based on the board, or how to steer your car, or what to do next. It could be labeling this. Image as a cat or a dog, you know, there's some output. Um, and so, model I would say is just generally anything that you know takes those inputs and gives you some output. But you've decided what that model does, right? And so, yeah, finding it, is, I guess, there's different aspects. It's like, what is what is the box made of? What is the model? What kind of machinery does it use? And then once you've decided on the machinery, how do you like tune it, right? So most of the current ones have essentially. Thousands and millions of little knobs on them that are being tuned in order to get the right output, Um, but there is deciding you know what the box is made of in the first place, and then what how to adjust all these little knobs. Okay,
1: so you mentioned forest uh, fire and fighting that earlier. If you start from a clean slate, do you go and import a model from something similar or different, and then start like you said adjusting all the bells and whistles here, or how, how do you how do you go about tackling that challenge?
0: Yeah, yeah, because forest fire is interesting because it's a, it's a real world problem with a lot of noise and uncertainty and messiness, which is good because sometimes as researchers, we um, want to prove that our you know box and its, its knobs work well. So we get toy problems and kind of validate that. Um, but real world things like forestry and forest fire are just so messy. Um, you've got satellite images, you've got records that may be incomplete, you've got humans doing things that is their best policy, but they didn't write, write down a program to say how they did it. Right. Um, So yeah, you you usually would take like some. They have their own models for predicting, you know, um, what's the outcome of the fire this year, and like, is it going to be a large season, or where is likely to burn? So you try to predict where a fire is going to be. I guess in that domain, it's it's a lot of it is trying to find models that are working really well in other things like automotive systems or advertising or you know just fun image generation, you know. and things, and apply them to something useful and important like forestry, you know, or, you know, something like that and and find a good fit for it. So in, in forestry, that could be the satellite images and you're trying to learn from those images, how fire works and spreads and, and get a better model that can predict where the fire is going to be next.
1: So was that, you said you did this in your PhD, I think the forest fire? I started starting standard?
0: dealing with trees, but it wasn't actually a forest fire. It was with there was a pine beetle epidemic, um, at the same time I was there. And that's how I got onto the topic actually, and at UBC, the computer science department is right beside the um forestry department. So UBC's a forest province, right? So they have a forestry department. It's a beautiful building. You walk in, um the Tim Hortons is there, so you walk into it a lot and you realize the moment you come in, this is the forest you know, usage building because it is made of so much wood, these huge beams that are, um, but they have, it's a sustainable, you know, horse forest management. So trying to find ways to harvest and replant and have a way that will cycle. But at the same time, they were having a big outbreak of mountain pine beetles that were killing the trees. And it was a result of previous policies that had stopped all the fires. So they were trying to use, see if there's ways to use AI to, um, um, help with the predictions about that and optimize it. So I did my thesis on doing some of that because it's such a big, such a larger model than, such a larger space than um, other datasets people would use. It's hard to even do the computation on it because the s- spaces are so
1: large. Okay, so you earlier talked about satellite images and forest fires. Are these images during the fire when the fire is burning before? What what kind of images are you talking about? Because, I mean, we always see all these satellites zooming by. You know, what are they collecting? And, uh, you know, is there some there just collecting certain images you need to be able to help on your prediction with the model?
0: Um, yeah, I think the stuff we're looking at are looking at really previous um, fires from previous years where we know what happened and trying to use that um, to train models to understand the dynamics of it and see if there's anything we can add to models that people are already using that maybe are simpler. Um, and, um, you can do it in real time, but in real time, you know, people need very fast responses. So you'd have to have a system that's very well proven and, um, and, uh, have high confidence, right? So in, in domains like this, especially, and in other ones, like in medicine or, you know, any safety conscious ones where you're going to get advice in real time, they'd want to know, you know, how the model is making its decisions or not. So it's kind of a big issue there, but yeah, you know, we're using historical data, um, and, and trying to, uh, see if we can, predict things that would happen and then mitigate them. And so hypothetically try different things and see what would have happened.
1: Okay, interesting. You know, we had a a conference back in end of November and we had the head statistician for Canada who talked about the satellite information they're collecting. And one of them that they're collecting is related to uh, moisture. So they're evaluating the lakes, the dry areas, a whole bunch of these and instantly actually was thinking about your work and was wondering gee if you knew where the drier areas are you could uh, probably know once the fire starts you know which direction it's going and uh, but this is like proactive
0: yeah you know yeah it's actually so I was actually at a a fire conference in um, Edmonton um, a couple months ago I just wrote a blog post about it recently on my website Um, because I wanted to reconnect, we have a strategic um NSERC, uh, network that I'm part of. Um, that's based out of Edmonton. Um, that is doing technology and some NAI with forest fires. So, just trying to meet people from that network there, and there were talks exactly on this. But people in you know that domain of forest research, analyzing you know how they can use moisture and wind and various things to predict better what would happen at high scales. You know, um, like for the entire continent or a province. Um, so then you could use those as input, and those models could be given as part of your knowledge, but then you try to also use images. The thing about ma- machine learning is that you can build a new box that basically is a blank slate and give it a bunch of inputs and, and train it on the output. Um, and so if you have these things that work really well, you can utilize them and then basically level up you know, a new model that integrates them together, which I think is really a part of what intelligence is, is synthesizing lots of different pieces of data and knowledge and using them to, to do something useful.
1: So you're not doing this all on your own, I assume. You probably mm-hmm. have a small team of people here at Waterloo that you're working with, students and things. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about you know who's mm-hmm. on the team and what what kind of work are they doing.
0: Um, yeah, I have a, a small group of um, grad students in my department in ECE. Um, I guess three PhDs and three masters at the moment. Um, we had a few um, PhDs uh, graduate in the la- last year and the year before. Um, and they're off doing, um, fantastic things. So, uh, <clears throat> Sriram Ganapathy, the Romanian was a, my PhD student finished last year doing, um, reinforcement learning, um, on like multi agents. And he looked a bit at this forest fire problem as well. So if you had multiple firefighters out in the, in the domain, how would you do planning amongst them in these, um, optimization algorithms we have for like. Basically, they're often used for, for game playing, um, for, for reinforcement learning, but we're trying to apply them to, to real-world domains like driving and forestry um, was one of the things he was was looking at. Um, I also have some other students looking at things in autonomous driving, so that's a big thing at Waterloo. Um, we've we collected a whole data set last year with the team in um, the last couple years um, with a, a corporation um, that lent us the, a car with sensors on it and everything. We collected um, 60 people driving around the region um, collecting data about their driving. So we're trying to do human driver prediction, um, driver behavior learning, we're calling it, um, on that project. And so that data is all collected and and done now. So we're trying to basically clean it up and make it public and do some results on it. And then there's also some students doing even medical imaging research. Sometimes I forget what the other ones are doing. But those are the main topics right now.
1: Okay, So autonomous is, like you said, a big topic of interest. I know we have the Watana bus on campus here. what's the bigger picture do we ever or what's the framework on how we're going to get into autonomous driving or is it always going to be like we start doing assist mode and you know etc cetera, etc cetera? i know we have those lane avoidance and things like that today
0: oh yeah um yeah i'm starting to wonder whether we're really going to ever have the thing where it draws all the, the steps because i mean it's always been a, a, a bit wary of that from my point of view it's like well the final step of it is going to be you know, policy, like society has to accept these cars as driving around independently. Um, And so we have to do that as a society to kind of accept it. We've done a lot to allow testing. So in Waterloo, they can um, test these cars on the roads. Um, And there's quite a lot built in. So my car, we've got really good, you know, lane keeping and driving. So when we drive to Toronto, it handles a lot of the 401 pretty well. And you're watching and holding the wheel, but um, it's doing most of the the grunt work, right? Doing city driving is, fundamentally harder and people can do it, but it's a matter of trust. An interesting part that isn't being done a lot is um, weather. So like, sure, it can work in California, but will it work in Waterloo in the winter when we have our snow whiteouts and everything? And no system I've seen can handle even the slush on the weekend we are driving back and there was a little bit of sleet coming and uh, it covered our radar and the whole system went offline. So you had to drive completely controlling. It's so, like, that's pretty um, sensitive, right? But that's a technological thing. People have to find ways to make these sensors um, Clear all the time. Um, Probably need windshield wipers on your sensors. That's you know? I guess it's not my area. We go the mechanical people to figure it out. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think so. I think that's important. But I think it's also like as we keep going up this curve, like we're getting to this eighty or ninety percent safety, they can drive all these situations if we trust them. But that last ten or five percent is going to be harder and harder. And um, it seems like it's going to be a while, if ever, before we really have them being doing all the driving um if that's what people want
1: i've seen um i've seen some things on long haul trucking as an ideal scenario because you know it's a repeated route you know uh, moving parts from a to b from factory a or tier ones to supplier to tier one you know things like that whereas yeah as much as we'd like to think we leave our house in the morning and drive the same path to get to work each day of course, you know, we got to go get gas and we got to go to the grocery store and there's different variances, but do you see maybe a, a less personal, maybe more industrial application as being the lead on autonomous?
0: Yeah, no, I always say that. I think, um, yeah, I definitely would never advise anyone to go into truck driving. Long haul truck driving is a career like that seems optimal, like very easy uh, low hanging fruit to say, we could just replace all that because highways are a fairly simpler environment, even though they're faster. Less happens, there's less options, right? And the trucks can do that. Um, And it's also something where we can regulate it and say these trucks have to follow this rule. Maybe we could even have dedicated lanes, you know, for autonomous cars or trucks on the highway, whereas city driving is always gonna be um, the hardest part. So the last couple kilometers to the delivery is different. Um, And that requires, I think, a bit more of another leap um, in reasoning for these systems that they take into account what's happening and have, you know common sense and and causality because just having a deep learning system with lots of sensors isn't gonna be enough to capture if you've never seen it before um you have to have a way to react to response a situation you've never seen right and um yeah I think the truck driving is a good one, and um even for commuting if they put those lanes that are sort of um for car sharing you know at some point have those be car sharing or a i you know and then have those cars, you know, drive fully autonomously, it might be a benefit.
1: What about the simplicity thing like Ion trains here? Why do we need a driver there? Oh, that's right.
0: Um I don't know, it's sometimes it's good to have, you know, a person who's around who knows how the system works for special cases. Um I'm a big fan of that. Like the last, you know, couple percent of complexity, like you can make it work maybe, but having a human there to do that is, is good. Um I mean, sometimes in Vancouver, the trains don't have drivers on them, so it's perfectly possible. Um, that's more again a societal uh, decision whether it makes sense.
1: Yeah, but you ride the subways in Toronto, and you, most of the time you can't see the driver. You never see a driver. Yeah, you know, well, um, it doesn't mean they're not colors. there. They're in a little cubby hole, locked away, and you know, at the front or rear or wherever they are on the train. So, it may just happen, and then we don't even realize there's no driver.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much that would save you, um, in terms of like efficiency or people. But, uh, like I said, if there's a special case and someone needs to decide, you know, someone to stay on a train or not, that's what the staff would be for, right? But, um, that's not a hard problem, obviously. Because it's on track. You can do that with AI. So there's some things, you know, in our life where we could do that automatically. Like a grocery store is another one. I'm like, why do we still have to have somebody go and scan all those things? Like, even the self checkout that we have, they've gotten better, but they're very finicky, you know there's no reason why you couldn't just have um, location sensitive kind of sensors on things you've picked up and essentially walk out and buy things as you go.
1: Yeah. There's that Amazon go is that exact model, you know, they, they make a smart cart and as soon as it enters the cart and knows what's in there and, and then builds it to your credit card and you just put it in a box and you leave, you don't talk to anyone. But, uh, so again, I can stick on the autonomous thing, uh, going to a, a smaller scale. It seems to be taking a lot of adoption in factories, you know, where there's more uh, pick and place robots going around factories, you know, all the automations, we're all ordering things from Amazon, you know, places like this. Um, is your team working on any of those kind of things?
0: Um, no, not right now with, with factory stuff. I and mean, when we talked to some people a couple of times about it, like you have these conversations with local um, companies who are looking for advice. And so I've had discussions about it, um, but nothing at the moment. It's uh, it's interesting yeah, because it's it's a domain where you can, again, control the environment um, and say, well, this is where the people are allowed to go, and this is the structure. But then you still have a pretty flexible system that can go and find all these irregularly shaped objects place and place them, right? Um, so uh, yeah, it's definitely a good way that it can be used. Um, but it doesn't necessarily require even the latest um, AI to do that.
1: I would think. OK, so uh, just some final thoughts here you know, AI is ramping up and jokingly call it the AI tsunami. What's your thoughts going, looking forward? What do you see over the next four or five years? How society is going to change? What areas?
0: Oh, it's a big question. Um, like what's the next big thing or, well, what we where it's going now, because right now everyone is talking about chat GPT and these like image generating um, art, AI art things. Um, that's very interesting. So we would call that generative models. So these are, you know, deep learning that is not just making a prediction and labeling cats and dogs or driving a car, but creating an entire new, um, we'd call it an instance of the data set, but essentially uh, instead of labeling pictures, it generates a picture that fits what you described. Um, so things that, that's moved a lot on um, forward, but it's interesting because there's um, controversy about it, like the way they are trained on the data they use. They basically take everyone's data and learn these very large models. Um, so it's very exciting, but it's also lots of um, questions about, you know, what's the best way to do it? And is this, can everyone use this? Or is it only going to be something that the largest computing resources possible can make happen? Um, so I think it's still going to go back to, like we are saying before, that we need to swing that pendulum the other way a bit and talk about meaning and, and models that have structure in them a bit. Because um, these are kind of brute force solutions. Not brute force, there's definitely some new innovations that have happened with transformers that are, people are still trying to understand. But it works because there's a lot of data and a lot of computing, so trying to understand what that means will be interesting. As a society, I think people reacting to that is gonna be interesting. Like, as teachers um, instructors, uh, we're talking about Chat GPT all the time because it generates very good text. Um, so, you know, if you're assessing students on writing essays or descriptions of things, a lot of that can be automated now, which isn't necessarily something we thought would be automated this quickly. Um, so, it leaves us with lots of questions about what's the right place for it and is there ways to regulate it or understand it or even detect it. So I think a very interesting research direction will be like, can you detect this was generated by an AI um, or not? Um, And that's actually quite a hard problem.
1: Yeah, you know, it's not just essays. Um, One of the students got creative and put the question into chat GPT, write me a SAT solver for, you know, and they put in a problem and it went and generated all the code. You know, so uh, this isn't just in uh, you know the arts or, or essay writing courses. This is across every part of uh, the university.
0: But what I'm pointing out to students when when we talk about this, because I actually just face it directly in my classes, because I'm ta- teaching a machine learning class this term and uh, a fourth year algorithms class. So I just gonna say, well, you know, I know this thing that might think is available to you, but keep in mind these models are optimized to be realistic, to sound like they're correct, or to give you an image that looks good they are not checking for correctness, right? They, the text ones generate words that sound like they fit together well, and grammatically is perfect, but it doesn't know it's the right answer. So it'll generate you code for your SAT solver, but it might not be correct. Um, it's like it'll write your essay, but it might just make up facts um, because that's what it sounds good. So hopefully that makes people worry about using them for that kind of thing. And also if you're using it as your search engine, it's not even the same as checking Wikipedia because Wikipedia is, watched by thousands of people who are you know experts on these subjects and it will get updated if it's wrong whereas ChatGPT will tell you something and no one will ever check um, if it's correct even though it's very impressive that it's so smooth right
1: yeah well exciting times ahead then uh again thanks for joining us today on let's talk ai and we got a little more insight into mark crowley and what makes you tick so thanks again